Good morning, everyone. As you know, my name is Judith. Uh, my connection to the church here is through Fiona. Uh, yeah, we, we both used to work for an organisation called Next Level International, a European mission organisation. And I think we sort of first met properly at a conference uh, in Slovakia, which was in 2008. So that is nine years, isn't it? My maths is working correctly this morning. So there you go. It's lovely to be with you this morning. I live in Leamington now, so not too far away. Uh, but it is really nice to be with you here this morning. And if you want to find um, 2 Peter, chapter 1, in your Bibles, I know you've been um, going through Peter's two letters, and I think you've hopefully finished the first one now, and this morning we are going to look at the first chapter of Peter's second letter. Okay, so just so that you know how we're going to sort of tackle this, I'm going to read the the letter in a a second, or the first chapter. Um, So I'm going to give you sort of a big picture overview of this second letter. We're going to zoom in a bit closer to an overview of this particular first chapter, and then we're going to zoom in even closer just to look at a specific verse or a few verses and see what what God will want to say to us this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, 2 Peter... Chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind. He has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins, Therefore, my dear brothers, make, sorry, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fail, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So I will remind always you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the coming and power of our Lord, sorry, about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have heard the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's quite a long passage, isn't it? Excellent. Okay, so briefly then, Peter's first letter, which you've already looked at, was written to encourage Christ's sheep who were suffering persecution from outside the church. His second letter, which we begin this morning, focuses on the church's internal problems, especially false teachers who are causing uh, the believers to doubt their faith and to turn away from Christianity. To Peter, this second letter combats this false teaching or heresy. He condemns the evil motives of the false teachers and he reaffirms the truth of Christianity, the authority of scripture, the primacy or the importance of faith and the certainty of Christ's return. And if you were paying attention, you probably saw a little bit of all of those in that passage this morning. So let's zoom in a little bit closer and look at the four sections that we find in this first uh, letter, or this first passage. And they all start with the letter P, so that hopefully will help us to remember them. So the first one is preciousness. And this is verse 1 to 4. At the start of this letter, he returns to a theme of preciousness, which he mentions a few times in the the first letter. In the first letter, he talks about the blood of Christ being precious and to Christ himself as the precious living cornerstone. And here in 2 Peter, verse 1, he commends the precious faith received through the righteousness of our Savior God, Jesus Christ. And then again in verse 4, to the very great and precious promises which enable believers to participate in God's divine life and blessings in a world of corruption. So that's the first section, preciousness. The second section, which is verse 5 to 11, is purpose. That we are blessed to escape this corruption in the world. Christians should add certain things to their salvation that they have in Christ. And these are found in verse 5, and we'll come back to these shortly. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, etc. This is fruitfulness, and it is these things that will enable us to be effective and productive in our faith. The purpose of those who follow Christ is to live a fruitful and godly life in tune with the Saviour. This is the evidence of our true calling and election, which Peter mentions. And it's these things which will keep us from stumbling. It's this saving faith which produces a life of effectiveness, of productiveness and fruitfulness and provides us a rich assurance, a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And as I said, we're going to come back to that shortly. Thirdly and briefly, Peter refers to his passing. 
Peter believes that his time is soon over. His time is soon going to pass away. And because of this, because time is short, he is determined to establish the believers in God's truth and leave behind a reminder of the importance of living for Christ. And finally is prophecy. Final P. Peter writes, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, we didn't make this up. The disciples were eyewitnesses. Peter was there, wasn't he, at the transfiguration of Christ. Peter, writing about that unforgettable experience, was reminded of another form of God's word, the written word, given by the prophets. And in fact, God's spoken word on the mountain of transfiguration made the written word of the prophets more certain or completely reliable, as Peter writes. The transfiguration represented the fulfillment of the prophetic word pointing to Jesus' kingdom on earth. I love how when you read this, you're not just reading Peter's letter to some Christians. You're, you're getting that rich depth of history. You're, we mustn't forget Peter spent three amazing years with Jesus. And out of that rich depth, he is teaching and encouraging these new believers. We also have God's word, the Bible, and it is this which guides us into his truth. Prophets, past and present, may think they've heard a voice from God, but God's word can be readily seen and examined. The prophecy of scripture did not merely come from the prophets themselves, but as Peter says, their writings came from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's just a brief overview of this first um, chapter this, of this second letter. So we're going to zoom in now one more time and return really to sort of around verse 3 and 4 and 5 and see what we can find there. Namely that this purpose of those who follow Christ is to live fruitful, godly lives in tune with the Saviour. Verse 3 again, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. When I read this, I was struck by this. It, it really it impacted me. I was, God has given us everything we need. Sometimes life is so challenging and difficult, isn't it? But God has given us everything we need. That's what we're going to look at this morning, about, the, about living a godly life. What is it that God has given us to enable us to live this life? What does this life look like? And hopefully we will find some answers. So firstly, what does it mean to be godly? The words godly and godliness, you will be surprised to learn, appear only a few times in scripture. But in actual fact, the whole Bible is all about living a life of godliness. We don't often hear the word godly these days, do we? And sometimes it can be misunderstood as being perhaps a little bit distant or um, I don't know, perhaps a little bit aloof or, or righteous, but the word godly is an amazing word. In the context of scripture and Peter's intention, it does mean being pious or devout, but it means being like God. It's as simple as that. Reflecting God's divine nature and his character, all the wonderful attributes God has, love, patience, kindness, wisdom, goodness, knowledge, being godly is a good thing, and it is something that we should pursue with passionate, 
uh, desire. So that's what it means to be godly. Secondly, why must we live a godly life? So when I was 10, I made a decision to follow Christ. I was brought up in a Christian family. My dad was actually a, a minister. And I had quite a, a sheltered Christian upbringing. But when I was 16, I moved away from home and I joined the police cadets. And I went to live with a bunch of other 16-year-olds in a training school. And it was a massive culture shock to me. 16-year-olds who are far more worldly wise than I was, than a naive 16-year-old. And I was totally unprepared for this different world. And you know, teenage years are crucial. You were mentioning about teenagers earlier. But our teenage years are vital because we are looking to find our place in the world, to find acceptance from our peers. And that's why peer pressure at that age can be so influential. And as I said, I was very ill-prepared for this environment that I was in. And I wasn't brave enough at that age to stand out from the crowd and say, it's okay to be different. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be accepted. But of course, my difference was, was obvious for all to see. I wasn't part of the gang. And I was teased and I was bullied for it. And I didn't like this. Nobody likes being picked on, do they? So, but I was clever, you see. I learned to adapt. I learned to say and do the right things just to fit in, just to be accepted, to have a few drinks without getting roaring drunk like the rest of them. I did just enough to perhaps keep my conscience clean without going against what I believe uh, in my faith, my Christian faith. But in reality, you know, I was often miserable because I had a foot in both camps without fully embracing um, the benefits of either. I don't know whether you've ever, ever felt like that in a particular point in your life. I don't think I'm the only one. You know, we want the courage to live a fully committed Christian life. But there are times when it's easier and it seems like more fun to be like everyone else, just to forget the consequences and just join in with the crowd. And we find ourselves trying to live with a foot in both camps or like this guy, a foot in both canoes. And you know that that's only going to end up in disaster. And Peter talks about this. He acknowledges this and he warns that obedient Christians are not killjoys or repressed or miserable, which is a picture the world so often paints. But a Christianity which wants to have the best of both worlds which will actually end up with the best of neither. I'll say that again. Christianity which wants to have the best of both worlds will actually end up with the best of neither. Remember I said that Peter is combating false teaching. He's reaffirming the certainty of Christ's return. And you'll see this more when you look at chapter 3, hopefully. So as we look at what it means to live a godly life, it's crucial to focus on the future because this determines how we live today. Peter makes it very clear. We face a choice. Choosing to be at home in this world will mean not having a home in the next world. Just think about that for a moment. Let that sink in. 2 Peter chapter 3 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? 
It's a rhetorical question, and Peter answers it anyway. He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Choosing to be at home in this world will mean not having a home in the next. One day, this earth and everything in it will be laid bare. The New Testament writers tell us time and time again that in light of this, we must put our confidence in what is lasting and eternal. And so the the fleeting nature of this world ought to make a difference to our choices, to the way we live our lives, to our values, our priorities. And that's why Peter challenges us to live lives of holiness, separating ourselves from sin and lives of godliness devoting ourselves to worship and service of God. We must keep our eyes fixed ahead on Christ's return and all that that means. We cannot live with a foot in both camps. We need to live godly lives because our home is in eternity. As Christ said, we do not belong to this world. We're called to live righteous, godly lives, lives of integrity, lives that imitate Christ. We are his witnesses. It's been said, and if you, don't, if you forget everything else that I say today, please remember this. It's been said that a godly life is the best advert for Christianity. A godly life is the best advert for Christianity. Now, that isn't easy. I've said a lot about living a godly life, and we know what we, what we should do. But if you're anything like me, sometimes you feel you make a right hash of it. So we're going to look now at how we live a godly life. How we can live holy and godly lives that reflect the awesome nature and character of God. And Peter gives us a two-part answer to this question. In verse 3 and 4, he explains that we are totally dependent on God and his power. But then in verse 5 onwards, he explains our own personal responsibility Divine sovereignty and human responsibility go hand in hand. We are totally dependent on God and we are totally responsible. So let me explain what I mean by those. In verse 3 it says, his divine power. I'm sure those of you who know your Greek will know the word for power is dunamis, where we get our word dynamite or dynamo from. And it's God's power which gives us all we need to live a godly life. The power doesn't come from within us. If it did, we would fail all the time. We don't have what it takes to be truly godly. You can relax and know that this morning. We don't have, in our own strength, what it takes to be truly godly. But, and there's always a but, but God allows us to participate in the divine nature That's amazing. That's what Peter says. God allows us to participate in the divine nature in order to keep us from sin and to help us live for him. And this power comes when we are born again. So if we're all Christians here this morning, we have this power within us. God, by his spirit, empowers us with his own moral goodness. One of the teachings or false teachings that Paul, sorry, that Peter may have been combating was something called Gnosticism. And one element of this is that uh, salvation required some sort of special knowledge. It wasn't achieved by faith in Christ. 
but a, a special higher level of knowledge, which obviously would exclude people who were a little, who perhaps weren't as intelligent or didn't think they were. Peter explains that this power to live a godly life comes not from a special sort of knowledge or higher learning, but simply from our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. We don't need any special kind of higher knowledge for salvation because God has made himself known to us through his glory, the excellence of who he is and his nature and his character, and also through his goodness. You find that in verse 3. The excellence of what God does, his wonderful deeds. And that is why Peter can say with confidence that his divine power has given us everything we need. There's nothing, there's no power shortage when it comes to life with God. I've got a torch here. If I remove the batteries, I'll only remove one because then I won't put them in the wrong way. But if I remove the batteries, this torch will not work. I can guarantee it. There's no way this torch will function as a torch. It's useless without batteries. But if I put the battery back in, and I really hope this works. Yay. You can see the torch suddenly has its source of power. It's ready for use. It's ready to be effective. But if I just leave the torch there, and I don't do anything with it, whilst the torch is ready for use, it's full of power, isn't it? It's got the batteries in there. It's not actually doing anything. It's not actually doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's just sitting there. I have to physically pick the torch up. See, I knew that would happen. You know it works because it worked before. There you go. It's a very clever torch. I have to physically pick the torch up and do something with it. I have to switch it on. I have to engage the power so that the light shines and the torch functions as it should. And I'm hoping you can see the analogy here. It's not perfect, but I'm sure you get the gist. As I said, we're totally dependent on God's power at work within us to enable us to live godly lives. But Peter goes on to say in verse 5, for this very reason, in other words, what I've just said in verse 3 and 4, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge and the other things that he mentions. So as Christians, we need to persist in working on our own character. It's like picking the torch up and doing something with it, physically doing something with the power in order to be effective. So we're totally dependent on God's power, but we are also responsible for living out a godly life. What does this look like? Faith must be more than belief in certain facts. Faith must result in action. Bible tells us that all the time in growth, in character, in the practice of these moral disciplines that Peter mentions. James sums this up in his letter, chapter 2, verse 17. He says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So, a few quick comments then, or pointers, about our responsibility in living a godly life. Firstly, this list, which is in verse 5 to 7, goodness, knowledge, faith, love, brotherly kindness, this list is not exhaustive. 
Paul gives us a few lists as well, which I'm sure you're aware of. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Colossians 3, 12, virtues such as compassion and humility. 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So the list is not exhaustive. Secondly, don't focus on lists. If you're a list person like me, that is incredibly difficult, but there you go. I've given you some examples then of the, of the different lists we see in Scripture or character qualities we are to work on. But, you know, it's equally important that we don't focus on these lists of virtues, but that we focus on pleasing God and living a godly life. Thirdly, it's not a case of working our way through the list. When Peter says about adding goodness to faith and knowledge to goodness, he doesn't mean we sort of focus on goodness, 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 and we get that cracked, and then we can move on to the next one. No, we've got to work on them all together. It's a continual part of living a godly Christian life. Fourthly, living a godly life involves deepening our relationship with God and with others. If you look at these, the first five qualities talk about our relationship or our inner life and relationship to God. The last two refer to our relationship with others, and we need both to work in harmony. Fifthly, motive is crucial. We mustn't try and live a godly life out of guilt, trying to live up to some unattainable perfection. Neither must we live a godly life from a self-centered motive, trying to earn ourselves a good reputation, to gain brownie points almost, feeling good about ourselves, or even striving to please other people. The only right motive is to please God. Devoting ourselves to the worship and service of God. Peter writes in the first letter, chapter 2, verse 9, that we are to show others the goodness of God, for he called us out of the darkness into his wonderful light. That is our motive for living a godly life, to show others God's goodness. Number six, living a godly life is hard work. Verse 5, Peter says, make every effort. The Greek here means diligence or zeal. Living a godly life does not come automatically. I don't know about you, but I've been enjoying the athletics this week. I've been glued to it. Fortunately, I work shifts, but fortunately my shifts have meant that I've been able to watch it nearly every evening, apart from this evening, which is the last one. But, you know, these athletes, they don't just turn up and, and run 100 metres they put training in, they put hard work in, they are diligent in their training. And living a godly life requires that we be diligent in understanding these principles and in seeking to apply them to our lives. Number seven, these virtues are not optional. It's not pick and mix. We can't pick the ones we like or the ones that we think we're good at and leave the others. And finally, Living a godly life is an ongoing process. And this will continue till we reach eternity. In a sense, then, we've come full circle because earlier I was talking about the future, about eternity. This is why we must live a godly life. Listen to what Peter wrote in verse 10. For if you do these things, the things in verse 5 and 7... 
you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The reward of living a growing, Christ-honouring life is the personal, personal rich welcome we will receive from Christ, our Saviour, into his eternal kingdom. What an incredible thought to receive that personal, well-done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness, to use Christ's word from Matthew. I don't know about you, as I said before many times, I try to be patient and kind and loving, and I fail miserably. But we mustn't give up. We mustn't think we are beyond hope in pursuing these qualities. No, we must keep going, keep being diligent, keep having the right motive, keep relying on God's power and promises, keep our eyes on the prize of eternity. Reminded of those well-known verses in Hebrews 12, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Peter challenges us to live lives of holiness, separating ourselves from sin, and lives of godliness, devoting ourselves to the worship and service of God. In order to do this, we are totally dependent on God and his power, on Christ's divine power which is more than adequate to strengthen our resolve, as Peter says. But we are also totally responsible ourselves to live out this godly life. So in closing, let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, we thank you for just the incredible way that words that were written on a letter to some Christians 2,000 years ago can still come alive and be relevant through your spirit to us today. We thank you that your word is timeless and always relevant. And Lord, help us as we think about what you've said to us this morning, as we think about what it means to live a godly life, that we will totally depend on you and your power that comes through salvation in us. But we will also be diligent in our own responsibility, in seeking to be godly in seeking to be full of love and goodness and faith that we will never give up that we know that when we make a mistake and we're not kind or we're not patient we can come to you ask for forgiveness and receive that forgiveness from you and that we can continue to live this sort of life lord help us to keep our eyes on the future not to look back on mistakes that we've made but to keep our eyes on the future, knowing that the choices and the way we live our life in this world will determine where we spend our future, that glorious eternity with you. Strengthen us by your power this morning, Lord, and enable us to live this godly life 
that you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen.